0: The Supreme Court holds that the right to bear arms exists for those outside of their houses as well. I'm your host, Zach, and this is Zach's Fact Shack. Today is going to be a mostly single issue day. Uh, we're going to be talking about the new opinion that just came out from the Supreme Court, just released yesterday. By the time you're going to hear this, it'll have been yesterday. Uh, we're going to kind of preview the opinions that will also be coming out today on Friday, which will likely include the much-anticipated Dobbs case. We'll have to wait and see if that comes out. There are still nine cases, I believe, waiting waiting to be um Given out as their opinion. And tomorrow is the last day, so currently on the docket for an opinion release. That does not mean that they won't push Dobbs until next week, but we'll have to wait and see. We've been for weeks now, we have been expecting it to be today, right? So we'll have to wait and see what goes on with that. But the big issue today is that the Supreme Court had a ruling on gun rights in the New York case known as Bruin. So don't think today's going to be any less interesting than normal. It's going to be packed with info. And before I go further, I need to remind everyone of the best way to find the podcast and share it with your friends and family. And that's to go to zacksfactshack.com. And you can follow the links of your from there to your favorite podcast players, such as Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Stitcher, and anchor.fm. But that's not all you can do on the new website. Because at ZacksFactCheck.com, you can reach out to me with your comments, concerns, ideas, etc. And it's there that you can support our show. It's not required, but it's absolutely appreciated. Now with that all done, let's get on with the show. So the Supreme Court has issued a ruling in the case of Bruin. The ruling is pretty heavy-handed. Um, but I kind of agree with what it says. So let's go ahead and read the syllabus, which basically gives us the background of the case. The state of New York makes it a crime to possess a firearm without a license, whether inside or outside the home. An individual who wants to carry a firearm outside his home may obtain an unrestricted license to have and carry a concealed pistol or revolver if he can prove that proper cause exists for doing so. An applicant satisfies the proper cause requirement only if he can demonstrate a special need to self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. Petitioners Brandon Koch and Robert Nash are adult, law-abiding New York residents who both applied who both applied for unrestricted licenses to carry a handgun in public based on their generalized interest in self-defense. The state denied both of their applications for unrestricted licenses allegedly because Koch and Nash failed to satisfy the proper cause requirements. So we will go on into the opinion, but this is where we're at. So what ended up happening is in the state of New York for a long, long time, they have had very, very stringent gun laws that are, they, they do not allow almost anyone to be able to get a firearm uh, for self-defense outside of the home. Even in the home is strenuous but outside the home is next to impossible. You have to prove the special need for self-protection, and that has come to be understood that basically you have to have a direct threat of bodily harm to you from someone else. The problem is is that for most people, when that direct threat of bodily harm actually materializes, it's, it's too late. Right, it's too late, and you are dead. Um, let, let's let's read what Justice Thomas actually holds uh, with with the opinion. So Justice Thomas delivered the opinion for the court, and this is a six three opinion with Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan dissenting. In District of Columbia versus Heller and McDonald versus Chicago, we recognize that the 2nd and 14th amendments protect the right of the ordinary law-abiding citizens to possess a handgun in the home for self-defense. So that part, we understand, this law does not bother with that part. If you are able to be in the home, you can have a gun. You have to have a license, but it's like almost every other state in the country in that Basically, if you are not a bad person, if you have not broken the law somehow and you're eligible to have a gun, you can get this license and it will let you have a gun in the house. I think it also includes your place of employment as well, but that's up to the, your employer. Um, generally, if like, it's your business, right? that It kind of works out if it's your business. So with that part, it does not go up against Heller and McDonald. So let's continue to see what this is. In this case, petitioners and respondents agree that ordinary law-abiding citizens have a similar right to carry handguns publicly for their self-defense. We too agree and now hold consistent with Heller and McDonald that the 2nd and 14th Amendments protect an individual's right to carry a handgun for self-defense outside the home. That's a big deal. That is a huge deal. This statement right here that I just read makes it understood legally that the constitutional right to self-defense is protected by the second amendment, both inside and outside the home. That's a huge, huge deal. The parties nevertheless dispute whether New York's licensing regime respects the constitutional right to carry handguns publicly for self-defense. In 43 states, the government issues licenses to carry based on an objective criteria. But in six states, including New York, the government further conditions issuance of a license to carry on a citizen's showing of some additional special need because the state of New York issues public carry licenses only when an applicant demonstrates a special need for self-defense defense. We conclude that the state's licensing regime violates the constitution. And that right there already, already we have now, we understand the holding of the court and the opinion of the court. And they are saying that the burden that is placed on the citizen to prove a quote, special need for self-defense is unconstitutional and cannot, cannot be held You cannot do that. That is not a valid decision or a valid criteria to make a decision on if you are going to give people license to carry a gun. New York State has regulated the public carry of handguns at least since the early 20th century. In 1905, New York made it a misdemeanor for anyone over the age of 16 to have or carry concealed upon his person in any city or village of New York any pistol, revolver, or other firearm without a written license issued to him by a police magistrate. In 1911, New York's Sullivan Law expanded the state's criminal prohibition to the possession of all handguns concealed or otherwise without a government-issued license. New York later amended the Sullivan Law to clarify the licensing standard. Magistrates could issue to a person a license to have and carry concealed a pistol or revolver, revolver without regard to employment or place of possession. Possessing such weapon only if that person proved good moral character and proper cause. Today's licensing scheme largely tracks that. If the that that of the early 1900s. It is a crime in New York to possess any firearm without a license, whether issued out, whether, whether inside or outside the home, punishable by up to four years in prison or $5,000 fine for a felony offense and one year in prison for a $1,000 fine uh, and for a misdemeanor. So with that, let, let's stop and explain what the, what that is. So if you have a gun in your home or outside of your home without any kind of license at all, it's a felony of $5,000 and it's a misdemeanor and up to $1,000 fine. Meanwhile, possessing a loaded firearm, so that's just if it's, you know, just on you with nothing, no loaded, it's just a gun that exists. Meanwhile, possessing a loaded firearm outside one's home or place of business without a license is a felony punishable by up to 15 years in prison. A licensed applicant who wants to possess a firearm at home or in his place of business, must convince a licensing officer, usually a judge or law enforcement officer, that among other things, he is a he is of good moral character and has no history of crime or mental illness, and that no good cause exists for the denial of the license. If he wants to carry a firearm outside his home or place of business for self defense, the applicant must obtain an unrestricted license to have and carry a concealed pistol or revolver. To secure that license, the applicant must prove that proper cause exists to issue it. If an applicant cannot make that showing, he can receive only a restricted license for public carry, which allows him to carry a firearm for limited purposes, such as hunting, target shooting, or employment. No New York statute defines proper cause, but New York courts have held that an applicant shows proper cause only if he can demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. Again, like I already said, most people who have a special need for protection are dead before that matters. This special need standard is demanding. For example, living or working in an area noted for criminal activity does not suffice. Rather, New York courts generally require evidence of particular threats, attacks, or other extraordinary danger to personal safety. When a licensing officer denies an application, judicial review is limited. New York's courts defer to an officer's application of the proper cause standard unless it is arbitrary and capricious. In other words, the decision must be upheld if the record shows a rational basis for it. The rule leaves applicants little recourse of their local licensing officer if their local licensing officer denies a permit. New York is not alone in requiring a permit to carry a handgun in public, but the vast majority of states, 43 by our count, are shall issue jurisdictions where authorities must issue concealed carry licenses whenever applicants satisfy certain threshold requirements without granting licensing officials discretion to deny licenses based on perceived lack of need or suitability. Meanwhile, Only six states and the District of Columbia have may issue licensing laws under which authorities have discretion to deny concealed carry licenses even when the applicant satisfied the statutory criteria, usually because the applicant has not demonstrated cause or suitability for the relevant license. All of these proper cause analogs have been upheld by the court of courts of appeal, save for the District of Columbia's, uh, which has been permanently enjoined since 2017. As set forth in the pleadings below, petitioners Brandon Koch and Robert Nash are law-abiding adult citizens of New York. In 2014, Nash applied for an unrestricted license to carry. A handgun in public. Nash did not claim any unique danger to his personal safety. He simply wanted to carry a handgun for self defense. In early 2015, the state denied Nash's application for an unrestricted license, but granted him a restricted license for hunting and targeted shooting or target shooting only. In late 2016, Nash asked a licensing office to remove the restrictions, citing a string of recent robberies in his neighborhood. After an informal hearing, the licensing officer determined that or denied the request. The officer reiterated that Nash's existing license permitted him to carry concealed for purposes of off-road, backcountry outdoor activities similar to hunting, such as fishing, hiking, and camping. But at the same time, the officer emphasized that the restrict restrictions were, quote, intended to prohibit Nash from carrying concealed in any location, typically, open to and frequent, frequented by the general public that emphasis is thomas's not mine I, it is thomas's he is making sure that you understand any location it's it's all capped and bolded i mean he wants you to read that between 2008 and 2017 Coke was in the same position as Nash. He faced no special dangers and wanted a handgun for general self-defense and had only a restricted license permitting him to carry a handgun outside the home for hunting and target shooting. In late 2017, Koch applied to a licensing officer to remove the restrictions on his license, citing his extensive experience in safely handling firearms. Like Nash's applications, Koch was denied, except that the officer permitted Coke to carry to and from work. In Heller and McDonald, we held that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protect an individual's right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. In doing so, we held unconstitutional two laws that prohibited the possession and use of handguns in the home. In the years since, the courts of appeal have coalesced around a two-step framework for analyzing the Second Amendment challenges that combines history with means and scrutiny. So what, what they're saying here is that since Heller and McDonald determined that you could have a gun in your home as self-defense and you had that right, the courts of appeal have heard many cases on gun rights and they have coalesced around a two-step process to determine whether you have the right to carry a gun outside of your house for self-defense. And if you meet this this uh, these two requirements, then yes, you would have the right to carry a gun. They have upheld the New York law under these conditions. The Supreme Court says, Today, we decline to adopt that two-part approach. In keeping with Heller, we hold that when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. To justify its regulation, the government may not simply posit that the regulation promotes an important interest. Rather, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearms regulation. Only if a firearm regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition may a court conclude that the individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's unqualified command. In other words, if you are wanting a weapon that is outside of the history of our country, so if the Supreme Court has long held that if you want to own a bazooka, you have to have shown an extensive amount of reason why. So if you want to carry a or have a tank and own a tank, it is possible to own a tank. It's possible to get this, but it is outside the purview of the norm uh, on how, what guns are, are normally carried by American citizens. So they have, the courts have the right and the legislatures have the right to restrict that section of bearing arms according to the Supreme Court. And it's been a long-held position. But since Heller and McDonald, the two-step test that courts of appeals have developed to assess Second Amendment claims proceeds as follows. At the first step, the government must justify its regulation by establishing that the challenge law regulates activity falling outside the scope of the right as originally understood. So they're saying that the law has to be it has to be stopping a behavior that is not normally read into the Second Amendment. So the law says you cannot own a nuclear weapon that's fine because it does not stand in the normal scope of the original understanding of the right to keep and bear arms. That's, that's what this says. Re- this requires a claimant to show a burden on conduct falling within the scope of the Second Amendment's guarantee. The courts of appeal then ascertain the original scope of the right based on its historical meaning. If the government can prove that the regulated conduct falls beyond the amendment's original scope, then the analysis can stop there and the regulation, regulated activity is categorically unprotected. So they're saying that if the government can prove that the regulated conduct, that the law is, set, is regulating conduct that is not under the amendment's original scope, then we will go, they'll go no further. It's not protected. Move on. But if the historical evidence at this step is inconclusive or even suggests the regulated activity is not categorically unprotected, meaning that it is protected, the courts generally proceed to step two. At the second step, courts often analyze how close the law comes to the core of the Second Amendment right and the severity of the law's burden on that right. The courts of appeal generally maintain that the core Second Amendment right is limited to self-defense in the home. If a core Second Amendment right is burdened, Courts apply strict scrutiny and ask whether the government can prove that the law is narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest. Otherwise, they apply intermediate scrutiny and consider whether the government can show that the regulation is substantially related to the achievement of an important government governmental task or governmental interest. So here's the thing. What I just read is what the courts of appeal have been using to determine whether a law was constitutional or not. This is where Thomas is, he's going, he he has a difference of opinion here. Let's continue reading. Despite the popularity of this two-step approach, it is one step too many. Step one of the predominant framework is broadly consistent with Heller which demands a test rooted in the Second Amendment's text, as informed by history. But Heller and McDonald do not support applying means-end scrutiny in the Second Amendment context. Instead, the government must affirmatively prove that its firearms regulation is part of the historical tradition that delimits the outer bounds of the right to keep and bear arms. That's the opinion. Now, there's more to it, and he keeps going into the lot to it that we'll have to cover, but unless we want this to be a five-hour podcast, I'm going to have to skip a few things because this is 135 pages. Thomas was not playing. In fact, just his portion, just his portion of this opinion, 135-page opinion, was 70 pages. Just his. Every page with footnotes and citations backing up the opinion that he writes. Here's the thing. What they're saying is that you cannot put, you cannot deny someone's right to self-defense outside of the home because historically that has been the understanding of the uh, constitutional amendment, the second amendment. And since it has been the understanding of, of the amendment historically, that is what we will go with. Now, if they had understood that the opinion or that the amendment meant something else, we would be in trouble. But that's not what it has meant from the beginning, whenever they founded the country. This, under, the understanding of the Second Amendment was that you had the right to self defense. In fact, one of the things that Justice Thomas actually does that he goes into. Uh, Let let me read for you. He he, he goes there, guys. He goes there. To prove that the understanding of the amendment has long been the right to self-defense wherever you are, he actually goes back to the Dred Scott decision, and he brings it up in this way. Even before the Civil War commenced in 1861, this court indirectly affirmed the importance of the right to keep and bear arms in public. Writing for the court in Dred Scott v. Sanford, Chief Justice Taney offered that he what he thought was a parade of horribles that would result from recognizing that free blacks were citizens of the United States. If blacks were citizens, Taney fretted, they would be entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens, including the right to, quote, keep and carry arms wherever they went. Thus, even Cheney, Justice, Chief Justice Taney recognized albeit unenthusiastically in the case of blacks that public carry was a component of the right to keep and bear arms a right free blacks were often denied in antebellum America dude he went there he absolutely went there he is showing these people he he went there to show people that hey look it was such an obvious understanding of the second amendment for so long that it was even stated as a quote-unquote bad thing to have blacks be able to have the right to carry guns. But here's the deal, guys. That's exactly what we want to happen. We want people to be able to carry guns no matter what race they're a part of. You have the right to self-defense, period. You do not have the right to harm others unless they are harming you first and you, you defend yourself. But outside of that, you have the right to carry for self-defense. This is a right held to all American citizens, whether you're black, white, pink, or purple. It doesn't matter if you are a citizen of the United States, you have the right to carry a firearm for self-defense in and out of your house. Now, that was Justice Thomas and what he said and what he had to say was good. That's what the actual opinion is and what everybody's going to base everything on. But I want you, I need you to listen to Justice Alito's concurring opinion. Remember, this was a 6-3 decision, but you can agree with the opinion and then write a concurring opinion saying that this is where you would change things or maybe you would add something. Or you can write a dissenting opinion saying why you think this was the wrong decision to make. Well, Alito is a concurring justice, so he wrote a concurring opinion. Let me read this to you because boy, oh boy, does he have, he just, he he has a fit over these people. So he is responding to the dissenting uh, documents claims. Let me just read this. This is really good. Justice Alito concurring. I join the opinion of the court in full, but add the following comments in response to this dissent. Much of the dissent seems designed to obscure the specific questions that the court has decided, and therefore it may be helpful to provide a succinct summary of what we have actually held. In District of Columbia versus Heller, the court concluded the Second Amendment protects the right to keep a handgun in the home for self-defense. Heller found that the amendment codified a pre-existing right, and that that this right was regarded at the time of the Amendment's adoption as rooted in the natural rights of resistance and self-preservation. The inherent right of self-defense, Heller explained, is central to the Second Amendment right. Although Heller concerned the possession of a handgun in the home, the key point that we decided was that the people, not just members of the militia, have the right to use a firearm to defend themselves. And because many people face a serious risk of lethal violence when they venture outside their homes, the Second Amendment was understood at the time of adoption to apply under those circumstances. The court's exhaustive historical survey establishes that point very clearly, and today's decision therefore holds that a state may not enforce a law like New York Sullivan Law that effectively prevents its law-abiding residents from carrying a gun for this purpose. That is all we decide. Our holding decides nothing about who may lawfully possess a firearm or the requirements that must be met to buy a gun, nor does it decide anything about the kinds of weapons that people may possess, nor have we disturbed anything that we said in Heller or McDonald versus Chicago about restrictions that may be imposed on the possession or carrying of guns. In light of what we have actually held, it is hard to see what legitimate purpose can possibly be served by most of the dissent's lengthy introductory section. Why, for example, does the dissent think it is relevant to recount the mass shootings that have occurred in recent years. Does the dissent think that laws like New York's prevent or deter such atrocities? Will a person bent on carrying out a mass shooting be stopped if he knows that it is illegal to carry a handgun outside the home? And how does the dissent account for the fact that one of the mass shootings near the top of its list took place in Buffalo, New York? The New York law at issue in this case obviously did not stop that perpetrator. Who, What is the relevance of this, the statistics about the use of guns to commit suicide? Does the dissent think that a lot of people who possess guns in their homes will be stopped or deterred from shooting themselves if they cannot lawfully take them outside? The dissent cites statistics about the use of guns in domestic disputes. But it does not explain why these statistics are relevant to the question presented in this case. How many of the cases involving the use of a gun in domestic dispute occur outside the home, and how many are prevented by the law by laws like New York's? The dissent cites statistics on children and adolescents killed by guns, but what does this have to do with the question whether an adult who is licensed to possess a handgun may be may be prohibited from carrying it outside the home? Our our decision, as noted, does not expand the categories of people who may lawfully possess a gun, and federal law generally forbids the possession of a handgun by a person who is under the age of 18 and bars the sale of a handgun to anyone under the age of 21. The dissent cites the large number of guns in private hands nearly 400 million, but it does not explain what this statistic has to do with the question whether a person who already has the right to keep a gun in the home for self-defense is likely to be deterred from acquiring a gun by the knowledge that the gun cannot be carried outside the home. And while the dissent seemingly thinks that the ubiquity of guns and our country's high level of gun violence provides the reasons for sustaining the New York law, the dissent appears not to understand that it is these very facts that cause law-abiding citizens to feel the need to carry a gun for self-defense. No, no one apparently knows how many of the 400 million privately held guns are in the hands of criminals. But there can be little doubt that many muggers and rapists are armed and are undeterred by the Sullivan Law. Each year, the New York City Police Department confiscates thousands of guns, and it is fair to assume that the number of guns seized is a fraction of the total number held unlawfully. The police cannot disarm everyone who acquires a gun for use in criminal activity, nor can they provide bodyguard protection for the state's nearly 20 million residents or the 8.8 million people who live in New York City. Some of these people live in high crime neighborhoods. Some must traverse dark and dangerous streets in order to reach their homes after work or other evening activities. Some are members of groups whose, whose members feel especially vulnerable. And some of these people reasonably believe that unless they can brandish or, if necessary, use a handgun in the case of attack, they may be murdered, raped, or suffer some, of, some other serious injury. Ordinary citizens frequently use firearms to protect themselves from criminal attack. According to a survey data, data, uh, defensive firearm use occurs up to 2.5 million times per year. A Centers for Disease Control Prevention report commissioned by former President Barack Obama reviewed the literature surrounding firearms use and noted that studies that directly assessed the effect of actual defensive uses of guns, have found consistently lower injury rates among gun-using crime victims compared with victims who used other protective strategies. Many of the amicus briefs filed in this case tell the story of such people. Some recount incidents in which a potential victim escaped death or serious injury only because carrying a gun for self-defense was allowed in the jurisdiction where the incident occurred. Here are two examples. One night in 1987, Austin Folk, a gay man from Arkansas, was chatting with another man in a parking lot when four gay bashers charged them with baseball bats and tire irons. Folk's companion drew his pistol from under the seat of his car, brandished it at the attackers, and fired a single shot over their heads, causing them to flee and saving the would-be victims from serious harm. I got to stop there. Firing warning shots is a terrible idea. You never know where that bullet's going to go. Do not do it. If you're going to brandish the gun, fine, but you better be prepared to shoot the people you're aiming at. The people behind them are not, should not be your victims. On July 7, 2020, a woman was brutally assaulted in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant in Jefferson City, Tennessee. Her assailant slammed her to the ground and began to drag her around while strangling her. She was saved by a bystander who was lawfully carrying a pistol, pointing his gun, who, who, uh, carrying a pistol, Pointed his gun at the assailant, then stopped as the who then stopped the assault and the assailant was arrested. I kind of got tongue twisted in there; one of the punctuation marks was missing. So that story was: a woman was being strangled, was going to die, and a bystander stopped the attack and held the man, who was then arrested. In other incidents, a law-abiding person was driven to violate the Sullivan Law because fear of victimization, and as a result, was arrested, prosecuted, and incarcerated. I reiterate, all that we decided in this case is that the Second Amendment protects the right of law-abiding people to carry a gun outside the home for self-defense, and that the Sullivan Law, which makes that virtually impossible for most New Yorkers, is unconstitutional. I'm telling you the, his his concurring opinion was he did not hold back on that. And I agree with him. Here's here's the thing all all of the arguments that you're going to hear from everyone on online on TV with the news, the media, the government, everybody's going to be talking about all of these things such, you know, but think of the children or all of these mass shootings and all of this stuff like look guys This does not change anything about that. All this does is guarantee that people have the right to legally carry a gun outside their home for self-defense. If they have met the standard to have a gun in their home, then they have met the standard to have a gun outside the home. That is all that says you still have to have it doesn't say whether you have to have a constitutional uh, or a uh, doesn't say that you have to have constitutional carry. It doesn't doesn't offer that. I, I I wish it would. I think that you should have the right to carry a gun without the government telling you that you can. But I understand that people have problems with that, and that's fine. This doesn't change that. the, st- the, the states that have constitutional carry, meaning you can carry a gun concealed or otherwise without a license, they have that. The states that don't have that don't have that. That did not change. The fact that someone was able to carry their gun outside their house would not have changed, would not have prevented, if if we did not let people have guns outside the house, would not have prevented the Buffalo shooting or the Uvalde shooting. Those both would have still taken place because the people still had the weapons at home. All right? So here's the thing. Whether you like it or not, the Constitution clearly states that there is a right for people to keep and bear arms, both in the house and out of the house. Now, you might disagree with that, and that's fine. You have the right to disagree with it. I think you have to go through some gymnastics to do it, but you have that right. In fact, the governor of New York has determined that she, uh, she disagrees with this opinion. And I, I, let, let, let me play, play you what she actually ends up saying. And I'm sorry this dark day has come. They were supposed to go back to what was in place since 1788 when the Constitution of the United States of America was ratified. And I would like to point out to the Supreme Court justices that the only weapons at the time were muskets. I'm prepared to go back to muskets. I don't think they envision the high-capacity assault weapon magazines intended for battlefields. As being covered with it, but I guess we're just going to have to disagree. So, what what is the what is the response to that? How, how do you refute that? Because it sounds right, right? Well, they only imagined us having uh, muskets, right? That's all they ever knew. There was there, there was no way they could envision this going forward beyond what it has already what, what's already happened. And, and I would say that I think you're wrong. If that's your opinion, I think you're wrong. And let me, let me read what the, the, today's opinion actually says in this scenario. We have already recognized in Heller at least one way in which the Second Amendment's historically fixed meaning applies to new circumstances. Its reference to arms does not apply only to those arms in existence in the 18th century. Just as the First Amendment protects modern forms of communications and the Fourth Amendment applies to modern forms of speech, the Second Amendment extends prima facie to all instruments that constitute bearable arms, even those that were not in existence at the time of the founding. Thus, even though the Second Amendment's definition of arms is fixed according to its historical understanding, that general definition covers modern instruments that facilitate armed self-defense. That is the Supreme Court's opinion. That's where it stands. So the argument that, well, they they couldn't have known, they, they had no idea. Well, you're, you're honestly looking at people in, in history as though they're idiots, if that is your opinion. Again, you are entitled to your opinion. You can keep your opinion. That's fine. But I think you are misinformed in this case. So think of it this way. We know that muskets used to be the predominant firearm. We know now that it is semi-automatic rifles and semi-automatic handguns are the predominant items being used at, for self-defense. So these, these guns are what are being used for self-defense. We understand that. Do you honestly think that in sometime in the future that it's not going to change and become an even more powerful weapon? I, I understand that that's going to happen. We're going to keep moving forward in progress. Who knows? Maybe we actually will get to laser guns. I don't know. Here's the thing. I don't have to imagine the specifics to understand the reality that this is going to progress forward over and over and over again. And the founding fathers were much smarter than I am. They understood and they were correct too. that, you know, at one point, the best long-range weapon in the world was the bow and arrow. And you had variations of that. you had a short bow that could go very short distances, but it was still it would still go farther than you could throw something. and you had really giant bows that could go greater distances. but it was still a bow. and it was it was absolutely manual. It was not automatic, it was not semi-automatic. But did you know that they actually had semi-automatic? bows and arrows, crossbows actually were able to, at one point, get to where they were able to feed a bow up, pull back on their own, another dart shaft would come up, and they would fire, and they would keep doing that. Then they called them darts at that time, whenever it was, whenever it was on a um, cross, crossbow. They understood that that was the predominant long-range weapon of its day. And then came muskets. Muskets were incredibly inaccurate outside of 80 yards. They really are. They just kind of lob things at people. They understood that that was the predominant type of weapon that existed. But guess what? What they also knew? People talk about how we shouldn't have, the military should be the only ones to have military-grade weapons. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. The founding fathers, when they wrote this, amendment understood the fact of this the predominant weapon used by the militaries of the world were muskets meaning that they were smoothbore barrels that, that were loaded from the end of the barrel muzzle loaded guns with smoothbore smooth bore barrels that would basically just lob a piece of lead at a great distance and maybe it would hit something maybe it wouldn't the vast majority of of the American Revolutionary soldiers that were not in military, owned rifles. Now, the most predominant rifle was the Kentucky Long Rifle. And this thing was incredibly accurate at great distances, six, seven hundred yards. So what they understood at the time of the writing of the Second Amendment was that the common man actually had weapons greater than that of the military. So if they understood that, and they didn't want people to have military-grade weapons or greater, do you think they would have left that, that, that giant gaping hole? No, they wouldn't have. They would have absolutely closed that hole and say, hey, 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 we understand that you should have self-defense, but it's, it's not those weapons. Those weapons, no, those are too good. They didn't. They absolutely left it to the plain reading of, hey, you have the right to keep and bear arms. They understood that they needed their people, their citizens to be able to jump at the moment's notice to defend their homes, their towns, their states, and their country. They had to have the ability to defend the nation. And they wanted the people to have the best weapons possible to do that. They also understood that the governments were always going to take more and more power. And they wanted the people to have a response to that power. That response was a deterring factor throughout almost all of American history. There were many times when the government could have absolutely taken over and didn't because the people were a prickly, prickly porcupine. And it was not worth the, pro- the trouble. So they didn't. But here's the thing. This is what I need people to understand. Most of the atrocities done by our government were done against unarmed people. So, we talk about the atrocities done by the government against the Native Americans. Well, if you would say, well, they weren't unarmed, they had weapons. Yeah, but they didn't have the military's weapons. They were denied the right to self-defense by a government who determined that they were lesser than. Do you think that these, these people would have survived longer if they had been able to defend themselves? Probably. Would our history be very different if they were so well-armed? Our army would have been like, eh, maybe we don't want to go in there yet. Maybe we should try to do peace talks and actually hold to the peace talks. The treaties that actually worked, the treaties that actually held, were the ones where the native tribes Could defend themselves. Those were the ones that held. But the moment that they were unable to defend themselves, the government would sweep in and take their rights and would massacre entire tribes. So here's the thing if you think that your government has your best interests in mind, you are ignoring history. All governments at some point turn to their own interest, getting themselves reelected, getting money in their own pockets. That's where our government is. Our government is not looking out for our best interests. So, to have this ruling is a huge deal because it means you, as a transgender American, as a black American, as a woman American, as a gay American, whatever prefix you want to put to the title American, you have the right to defend yourself. Yes, it doesn't matter whether I agree with your political, spiritual, emotional worldview. You have the right to defend yourself from threats to your bodily heart, to your, to your physical body. You absolutely have the right to defend yourself. Do you not think that that's a good thing? We hear all the time that uh the transgender community is is hunted down by these crazy people and it's like okay train them give them a weapon train them how to use it let them defend themselves because just like this, the the document says the police cannot be there as bodyguards all the time I, I think the state one of the statements is is that a gun in the hand is better than a police force on the phone you know when 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 seconds matter, the police are minutes away. Here's the thing, and that, I'm, not, I'm not detracting from police. I think that police are incredible and should absolutely do their job and defend people, but they can't defend everybody. There's only so many of them. And this, this law or this, this order by the Supreme Court clearly defends Americans' right self-defense, to keep and bear arms and to move forward, hopefully with new laws that allow for that. Because the last thing, I I don't want people like Ocasio-Cortez that I disagree with vehemently on almost everything. I don't want her to have to fear for her life. I want her to be able to protect herself from all enemies. That's what I want. I want her to have the right to live peacefully in her own home, to walk out and go to the restaurant and to know that no one is going to touch her because if they do, they will be dropped dead for, the, for their troubles. That's what I want. I want that for me. I want that for the kids that I might have in the future. I want us to be able to have the right to defend ourselves, period. In a discussion, there is no argument against that. I'm sorry, there isn't. Now, maybe you can think of one and you want you would know, like, say, oh, but you didn't think about this and that's fine. Message me. I told you, go to zacksfackcheck.com. You can tell me all of your questions, comments, and concerns. I'll respond to it. I'll respond to you. I might even put it in the podcast and we can talk about these issues. But today's opinions, opinion on gun rights is a huge win for all Americans no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, it's a huge win. But with that said, tomorrow is going to be an interesting day. Like I said, I believe there are still nine cases yet to be decided. We're waiting on those cases. The biggest of which is Dobbs. And Dobbs is the case that the the opinion had been leaked by someone we don't know who. We don't know what the purpose was. There are there are competing arguments that maybe maybe it was they knew that the justices were going to flip and hold uphold Roe v. Wade, and so a conservative released the opinion that way. Everybody knew that at some point they actually did agree to over overrule it. Others believe that it was a liberal that that released it. Now, I don't think it was any of the justices. I think it was some of the clerks and assistants and things like that that have done it. But the the, the opinion is is that if that these are rights that the women should have to, to their own bodily autonomy, and that this opinion is going to destroy that, and I have to tell everybody, and maybe they'll stop stop it from happening. Here's the thing: if that's the case, what what I wonder is if the justices don't double down on voting to repeal Roe because if they show that they can be intimidated, the left will never stop intimidating them ever. That's, that's what I think is the, is the deal. And I think that's what most of the, most of the justices understand is that now that that argument is out there and that that opinion has been leaked, that they kind of can't change from what they said in that opinion, that they have to stick with that because the left has been intimidating. Actually, remember, I talked about it in the past. Someone attempted to murder Justice Kavanaugh, attempted to murder him over this case. Yeah, that's how unhinged the left is right now about this case. But what we expect to see tomorrow, again, it may not happen, But we expect to see, and I keep thinking tomorrow, by the time you hear this recording today, it will come today on Friday, the 24th. This is going to be a big day if it comes out. And I would expect plenty of violence in the streets because that's what the left does. That's all they know. They don't understand anything else. That's all they can do. Just violence, 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 violence. I I hope that it doesn't happen, but I am 99% sure that it will. But tomorrow at 10 a.m., we will begin to see the cases be released. Now, they have only released between two and six cases a day so far. Like I said, there's only there's nine left. I don't know if they will release all nine or if they'll wait until the following Tuesday at 10 to release the last of the uh, documents my gut would say that they were, they're they ready to get out of town and they're going to release the, all of this, including Dobbs on a Friday and kind of just let it burn. They know that it's going to be chaos. They're going to release it and run. Not because they think it's wrong, but because they know that the place will be attacked by the left. That's what they're getting out of the way of. They they do not want to have bodily harm. So they're going to leave, probably leave town, leave the state maybe and go on vacation and get away. and just live their lives for a little bit. That's, I don't know what they're going to actually do. That would be my guess. So tomorrow makes sense to release it on a Friday because it, most of the time, whenever you want something to be released and not to have a massive news cycle on it, you'll release it on a weekend. That's whenever they hide all the uh, information that they don't want people to really read up on because all the talk shows aren't going to be, aren't going to be on over the weekend. That's what they normally normally do. I fully expect that to happen tomorrow. If it does, I will have that information for you uh, on Tuesday. And we will go over it and we will read the opinion and we will see what they have to say. But until then, until next time on Tuesday, this is Zach and this is Zach's Fact Check. I hope you had fun. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're more informed with what we have been talking about. There's a lot of stuff going on. This was a big deal. I wanted to get it covered, but we'll cover more things next time. So until then, I will see you later.